U.S. Navy History arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by the venerable XO, Krista. Whoa, venerable. Thanks, Dale. Uh, it's good to be here again, and I'm excited for uh, continuing our conversation from last time. Well, we're happy to have you. So, last time we were talking about a gentleman named Robert Smalls. We're, we're using the next few episodes to talk about notable African Americans in naval history. So, we're going to finish up Mr. Smalls, and then we're going to move on to Carl Brashear. And if we have time, we'll move on to a couple more people that uh, I've, I've found. Nice. So are you ready to get it away? Oh, yes, sir. Let's do it. All right. So we had just finished talking about his naval career. So what we had also discussed was that, you know, due to the, due to that he was African-American, you know, he was doing stuff that he wasn't technically allowed to do. Oh, tell me more. Well, remember, he was being a pilot, which he wasn't allowed to do. He was a captain, which he wasn't allowed to do. But they let him anyway, which I think was interesting. I think it was a testament to his ability. Like, he was really good at what he did, and even though he was a slave, they let him right. do it. For the Confederate right. Army, no less. Well, yes, that's true. Or and then the, the Union afterwards. Right. Uh, so we're going to discuss how he got away with all this real quick. Because, I mean, of course, there's been disputes on how this all happened. But during his life, uh, articles that were written about him said that when he was assigned to pilot the plantern, the Navy did not allow him to hold the rank of pilot because he was not a graduate of a Naval Academy, which was a requirement at that time. So to assure that he received the proper pay for a captain, he was commissioned a second lieutenant in the first South Carolina Volunteers. And he was sent to the Navy as a temporary assigned duty to act as a pilot. Interesting. Many sources also state that General Gilmore promoted Smalls to captain in December of 1863 after he saved the plantern when it was under attack near Sessionville. Other sources state that Smalls did receive a commission either in the Army or the Navy, but that he more than likely was just officially a civilian throughout the war. In 1865, his salary as commander of the plantern was given in a newspaper as $1,800, which in today's money is 34411 Nice. Uh, he and the planter were in Charleston Harbor when, with the other Union ships in 1865, and transported from shore all of the African-Americans who wanted to attend the flag ceremony raising at Fort Sumter. That was really cool that I got to be there, you know, given that that is the fort that he sneakily sailed past. Right. He both fought for it and against it 
So that's that's pretty cool. Absolutely. I think I don't know his his um his fate is inextricably intertwined with Fort Sumner. So that's nice. So later in life he sought a navy pension. And that is when he learned he had not been officially commissioned. He told them that he received an official commission from Gilmore, but he, you know, lost it. In 1883, a bill passed committee to put him on the Navy retired list. But in the end, it was defeated. More than likely due to him being African. Almost definitely. Given all all the um, achievements that he was able to uh, acquire. Yeah. In 1897, a special act of Congress granted Smalls a pension of $30 per month, which was equal to a pension for a Navy captain. Wow. That's significant. So, yeah, it took quite a while, but he he finally got it. And it took a special act of Congress, which I think is, um, I don't know how notorious you need to be, not in the negative sense, but, you know, how famous or whatever you need to be for Congress to convene and talk about you specifically to make sure things are made right with you. But that's pretty awesome. Yeah. So the prize money from the plant turned, you know, the whole capture at first. In 1883, there was a discussion to put Smalls on the Navy retired list. A, A report stated that in 1862, appraisal of the plant turned was low and that a fair valuation would have been over sixty thousand dollars holy moly but yeah but you know smalls didn't receive any payment until 1900 that year congress passed a statue paying smalls five thousand dollars which was actually less than what uh less than in 1862 for his capture of the steamship in the first place. Huh. I mean, I guess they're trying, but still. They're trying. Yeah, they're not trying very hard. Right. It's more to appease their conscience, I think, than anything. I don't even know that. I think think it would be more to try to appease the general public. Oh, yeah, you know what? That's true. It's like, hey, we gave them $5,000 and... I'm sure at the turn of that century, what, we were just off the heels of the Spanish-American War, so they may have been distracted otherwise. Yeah. So, how about after the Civil War? Immediately after it, Smalls returned to his native town of Beaufort, where he purchased his former master's house. That is a baller move. That is... Yeah, the Union actually seized the property in 1863 due to unpaid taxes. Can they... That always confuses me. Like, if I'm declaring independence from another country, and I'm my own... I've got my own thing going on, how can you, as my former country, extract taxes from me if I'm independent of you? Is that what happened? Property changed hands between the Union and the rebels 
you know, whenever there's battles and stuff, but also taxes were still being charged. Well, I agree that taxes were being charged, but it would be like duties being paid if I'm in the Confederate States of America, for example. I would pay duties to my nation, not to the Union, because that's a totally... It would be like me as an American today paying taxes to France just because. And that doesn't... It doesn't make sense to me, but I'll chalk that up to one of those historical that's weird. I'm going to put it in the that's weird category. And then we can move on. Okay. Sure. <laughs> That's weird. Trying to understand how they were trying to do all that during a time of war when yeah. land was, you know, falling under union hands and uh, rebel hands, the back to union hands and, you know, back and forth, back and forth, yeah. back and forth. And I, from a I modern, don't... like, I'm thinking of it as a, an American in the 21st century, which may be a totally different perspective. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So later the former owner actually sued to get the property back, but Smalls was like, Nope, this ain't going to happen. And he fought it and he retained ownership. Way to go, Robert or captain Smalls. I should say. This case actually became an important precedent in other similar cases. Yeah, that's that's what so, you want in life is you want a precedent named after you and not like a disease. If you were the first to get a, a novel weird disease, you don't want that to be oh, you've got you've got Dale syndrome. That's what you don't want. You do well, want it depends oh, on what Well, the Dale it precedent depends on says what, it depends on what, what the disease is. There's really cool diseases out there. I don't know, man. I, <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess I'll, I'll pick your brain. Give me an example of a cool disease you wouldn't mind being named after. Any disease that gives you superpowers. Okay, you got me there. That, that will be the, it, the Dale exception. Uh, his mom, Lydia, lived with him for the rest of her life. So he took care of his mom. That's, That's really dude. cool. Good dude. He also allowed his former enslaver's wife, Jan, uh, Jane McKee, to move into her former home just before her death. Oh, wow. That's really nice. Yeah. Smalls then spent nine months learning how to read and write. That's, I, I guess, that's stunning to me that that was a surprise when you said that because... Of course, yeah. They didn't really promote literacy in the enslaved population. And no, actually... Go ahead. Actually, they purposely did not educate right. their enslaved population. And he did all of these accomplishments while illiterate. Yeah. It's amazing. He also purchased a two-story Beaumont building to use as a school for African-American children. Wow. In 1866, he went into business in Beaufort with a guy named Richard Howell Glaze, who was a businessman from Philadelphia, where they opened a store to serve the needs of the freedmen. He also hired a teacher to help him study. 
that April, the radical Republicans who controlled Congress overrode President Andrew Johnson's votes and passed the Civil Rights Act. In 1868, they passed the 14th Amendment, which was ratified by the states to extend a full citizenship to all Americans, regardless of race. Smalls then invested significantly in the economic development of the Charleston-Beaufort region. And in 1870, in anticipation of a reconstruction-based prosperity, he, with fellow representatives Joseph Rainey, Alonzo Rainzer, and others, formed the Enterprise Railroad. Wow. This was a 18-mile horse-drawn railway line that carried cargo and passengers between the Charleston Wharves and inland depots. You know, that's pretty intelligent. I mean, I was thinking like a coal-driven steam engine, but if you're just going from the wharves to to an interior location, just the amount, and given that Charleston was such a busy harbor, that's a really profitable business. Yeah. Now, except for one white man who was a director, the railroad's board of directors was entirely African-American. A guy named Richard H. Kane was its first president. Author Bernard E. Powers described it as, quote, the most impressive commercial venture by members of Charleston's black elite. And, of course, we've also already talked about that he helped own and publish a newspaper called the Beaufort Southern Standing. I think we've covered that. That is, he's got his hands in a lot of different projects. That guy is a dynamo. Yeah, that was just his business ventures. Now we're getting to his political adventures. Oh my gosh. He just learned to read, and now he's taken off. Yeah. This is amazing. Yeah. Uh, Due to his wartime fame and his fluency with the Gula dialect, which was a language spoken by the Gula people in the uh, African-American population in the coastal regions of South Carolina and Georgia, as well as extreme northeastern Florida and extreme southeast North Carolina. This actually gave him an avenue for his political advancement. Smalls was, of course, a Republican because... You know, the Republicans are the people that supported them at this time. Right. Uh, And, of course, the Republicans were the dominant party in the North. And they passed laws granting protections for African Americans after the Civil War. On August 22nd, 1912, Smalls wrote to a U.S. senator, a guy named Knut Nelson. And he said, quote, I never lose sight of the fact that had it not been for the Republican Party, I never would have been an office holder of any kind from 1862 to present, which is 1912. Wow. Well, in words that later became famous, he described his party as the party of Lincoln, which unshackled the necks of four million human beings. He wrote this line on the September 12th, 1912 in a letter expressing his anxiety over the looming presidential election 
In that letter, he concluded, quote, I ask that every colored man in the North who has a vote to cast said vote for the regular Republican Party and thus bury the Democratic Party so deep that there will not have seen a bubble coming for the spot where the burial took place. That That's pretty uh descriptive. Let's bury the sons of guns. Yeah, I think that that election... I'm trying to remember. I think that was the one where Roosevelt, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, ran as a bull moose Republican against the incumbent Republican. And so you ended up having the Democrat win because the Republican vote was split. And so I'm sure there was a lot, a lot of petitions in that way. It's just like, hey, let's focus our efforts so we'll bury them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, do you know who the who was voted president? I'm going to look it up. Uh, no, you got to out of your head, out of your head. You're not allowed to. All right, Google so it. 1912 was bef- right before World War One, so I'm guessing it was Woodrow Wilson, probably. You are correct. Yeah, yeah, baby. You don't need Google. Just, you don't need it. Just need to unlock the catalog up here. You stop cheating. You stop cheating. I'm cheating for the listener. The listener, the benefit. No, 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 no. I like it when they laugh at you. Oh, oh. Well, good. Then I will. <laughs> uh, I will refrain. I'll just start saying stuff out of my head all the time. Uh so Smalls was a delegate in the 1868 South Carolina Constitutional Convention. Here, he worked to make a free compulsory schooling available to all South American children. He also served as a delegate at several Republican national conventions, and he also participated in the South Carolina Republican state conventions. In the same year, he was elected to the South Carolina House of Representatives, and he was very effective. He introduced a Homestead Act and a Civil Rights Bill. In 1870, a guy named Jonathan Jasper Wright was elected judge of the South Carolina Supreme Court, and Smalls was elected to fill his the rest of his time in the state Senate. Wow. He then continued in the Senate, winning the 1872 election against a guy named W.J. Whipper. The Senate considered him a very good speaker and debater. He also served on the Finance Committee and was chairman of the Public Printing Committee. The Public Printing Committee is a joint committee of the United States Congress that oversees the functions of uh, the Government Publishing Office and General Printing Procedures of the Federal Government. Makes so sense. that would be, yeah, that, that, so that, that's for the federal, so he would be the one in charge for, you know, uh, South Carolina? Yeah, South Carolina. I would have had the words eventually. No, no, you, we're, we're a team, see? Yeah. Smalls was also a delegate to the National Republic Convention in 1872 in Philadelphia, which nominated the incumbent President Grant for re-election, and in 1879 in Cincinnati, which nominated Hayes, and also in 1884 in Chicago, which nominated Blaine. He just pretty much participated in all of them until 1896. Wow. He was elected vice president of the South Carolina Republican Party 
at its 1972 state convention. In 1873, he was appointed Lieutenant Colonel of the 3rd Regiment South Carolina State Militia. He was later promoted to Brigadier General of the 2nd Brigade South Carolina Militia and to a Major General of the 2nd Division South Carolina State Militia. And he held this position until 1877 when Democrats took control of the government. That's right. So who, that's a something I'd never thought of or really encountered. So when it comes to the militia and who's in charge of it state by state, that's, is that a political appointment office or elected by somebody? How does that work? It's an appointment. Okay. For, for military stuff. Yeah, that's a, that's appointment. Okay. I guess I just never thought about it from the state level, but yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, militias nowadays would be described as the uh, National Guard or? Yeah, the National Guard. Okay. Only the militia would be a lot less loose than our National Guard today. Oh, really? More regimented, like more uh, aligned with federal military type standards or what do you mean? Today they are. Okay. Back then it was by state. Today, it's federal. Interesting. So let's move on to national politics. Is Yeah, he got into the national scene as well. Dang. This guy is something and, else. Yeah. In 1874, he was elected to the United States House of Representatives, where he served two terms from 1875 to 1879, and then again from 1882 to 1883. He represented South Carolina's 5th Congressional District in the House. The state legislator, Gary Mandard, district boundaries, thereby including Beaufort and other heavily African-American coastal areas in South Carolina's 7th Congressional District. And this provided other nearby districts substantial white majorities. Smalls was then elected from the 7th District and served from 1884 to 1887. He was a member of the 44th, 45th, 47th, 48th, and 49th U.S. Congresses. In 1875, he opposed the transfer of troops out of the American South because he was afraid that the effect of such a move on the safety of the African Americans in the region, he felt that once you bring the troops out, then all these slave owners or former slave owners are going to restart everything again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a that was a big political change at that time. As a result yeah. of that, you know, it, yeah, effectively it was an occupying force by the Union still, like for what eleven, ten, eleven years, and then they withdrew, Something thinking like ten years is enough. But then the, they had no backing, and so yeah, like you said, the Democrats took over or just. The 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 local white former Confederates took over, with the exception of, I think, those in leadership because of the 14th Amendment, which barred people that were in active rebellion against the Union office. So if you were a general for the South, you couldn't be like a governor or anything. Yeah, the, the guys that, you know, were high on the totem pole or the... Told, yep, you're not doing nothing anymore. 
go go back to your farms and you know never show your face here again right please yeah don't don't make laws for uh, everybody else that might restart this whole thing yeah so during the consideration of a bill to reduce and restructure the u.s army smalls introduced an amendment that provided that quote hereafter in the enlistment of men in the army no distinction whatsoever shall be made on account of race or color unfortunately the amendment was never considered by congress yeah i mean the Racism in the U.S. military was very, very evident up until World War II. I think there was some integration around the turn of the 1900s, but then it was resegregated during World War I and then reintegrated, I think, during World War II. But it's just, yeah, there's a lot of racism throughout the country at this time. Yeah, there's still racism throughout the country now. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, he was the last Republican elected from the 5th District until 2010. Dang. This is when Mick Mulvaney took office. But Smalls was also the second longest serving African, African-American member of Congress until the mid-20th century. So after the Compromise of 1877, the U.S. Co- the U.S. government withdrew all the remaining forces from the South Carolina and other Southern states. Um, the conservative Southern Bourbon Democrats used violence and election fraud to regain control of the state legislature as part of a wide-ranging Democratic Party efforts to reduce African American political power. We knew that was going to happen. Yeah, I think the the term "Bourbon Democrats." So that's you got to wonder how they got that nickname. This was a name to refer to members of the Democratic Party who were ideologically aligned with fiscal conservatism or classical liberalism. Okay, that in and of itself doesn't seem bad, given their but I guess if you only limit that to one race, that is bad. Yeah. So like, hey, free nah. speech, property rights, that's all awesome. Oh, except for you folks. Right. So the nickname Bourbon Democrat was first used as a pun. It referred to the bourbon whiskey from Kentucky. And also to the Bourbon Dynasty of France. Uh, nice. So, uh, let's see. So, because of these Democrats, Smalls was actually charged and convicted of taking a bribe five years earlier in connection with the awarding of a printing contract. He was ultimately pardoned as part of an agreement by which the charges were also dropped against Democrats accused of election fraud. Oh, man. That's like a prisoner swap in war. That's crazy. That's exactly what it was. It was like, okay, we will pardon your Republican if you pardon our Democrats. Politics, am I right, man? Oof. Yeah. So this scandal took a political toll on Smalls. Of course, of course it would. 
He was defeated by the Democrat George D. Tillman in 1878 and again narrowly in 1880. He successfully contested the 1880 result and regained the seat two years later in 1882. And then two years after that, in 84, he was elected to fill a seat in a different district. He was then nominated for the Senate, but he was defeated by Wade Hampton in December of 1884. During this period in Congress, he supported the racial integration legislation and supported a pension for the widow of his former Major General David Hunter. He also advised the South Carolina African Americans to refrain from migrating to the North or Midwestern United States, or to, as we discussed earlier, Liberia. Post-war, I know a lot of African Americans moved North to jobs in Chicago and whatnot, and that all a side effect of that was that they had less, not that they had much of a voice, but they had even less of a voice in Southern states because of such a a large migration, and so the ones that benefited were certainly the Southern whites. Yeah, well, they were also, you know, like we're still getting killed. Hated on. Let's uh, go north. More of our, guy, our more of our own people are up there. We, we we might be a little bit safer. Nobody can fault them for that. No, certainly not. Survival. Yeah, I would have pr- probably done the same thing if I was in their shoes. In the late 1890s, Smalls began to suffer from diabetes. He turned down an offer of a colony of an African-American U.S. military regiment in the Spanish-American War, and a, he also refused an appointment to the position of minister to Liberia. Now, Smalls was not officially involved with pot- politics at, on the local level. He was at state and federal. But he did have some influence. In 1913, in One of his final actions as a community leader, he played an important role in stopping a lynch mob from killing two black suspects in the murder of a white man. He pressured the major saying that blacks that he had sent throughout the city would burn the town if the mob was not stopped. So the mayor and the sheriff stopped the mob. That's quite a... I mean... I'm glad he saved those guys' lives, but I think that's just yeah. uh, that's indicative of what was happening. Like that was kind of the attitude, the prevailing attitude of the time. Yeah. So Smalls died of malaria and diabetes on February twenty third, nineteen fifteen, at the age of seventy five. He was buried in his family's plot in the churchyard of the Tabernacle Baptist Church in downtown Beaufort. There is a monument of Smalls in his churchyard inscribed with his 1895 statement to the South Carolina legislator, quote, My race needs no special defense, for the past history of them in this country provides them to be the equal of any people anywhere. All they need is an equal chance in the battle of life. Well said, Mr. Smalls, Captain Smalls. The state of South Carolina celebrates Robert Smalls Day, Every May 13th. Nice. 
Uh, Fort Robert Smalls was named in his honor. It was built by free blacks in 1863 on McGuire's Hill on the south side of Pittsburgh during the Civil War. And it survived there until the late 1940s. The Robert Smalls House in Beaufort has been designated a National Historic Landmark. There is a monument and statue dedicated to his memory where he's interned at the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Beaufort. There is a school in Kershaw, South Carolina named for him. There is the Robert Smalls International Academy in Beaufort County, South Carolina, named for him. During World War II, Camp Robert Smalls was established as a sub-facility of the Greater Lakes Naval Training Center to train black sailors. The Werner House Museum in Beaufort has an exhibit on Robert Smalls. In 2004, the United States named a ship for Robert Smalls. The USAV Major General Robert Smalls, LSV-8, which was a Kuroda-class logistics support vessel operated by the U.S. Army. It was the first Army ship named after an African-American. Charleston held a commemorative ceremony in 2012 on the 150th anniversary of Robert Small's escape on the planter with special programs on May 12th and 13th. Robert Small's Parkway is a five-mile section of South Carolina Highway 170 that crosses Port Royal Island and leads into Beaufort. A statue of Robert Smalls is in the U.S. National Museum of African American History and Culture. Waterfront, Waterfront Park in Charleston contains a small pedestal with a plaque explaining Robert Smalls' contributions to the area. And there is a proposal to create a statue of Robert Smalls to be installed at the South Carolina State House. A biopic of Robert Smalls is being developed by Legion M. Wappler Corporation and Bill Duke entitled Defiant. March 1st, 2023, the Navy renamed USS Chancellorsview, Chancellorsville to USS Robert Smalls, after Smalls, based on a recommendation from the naming commission. So that is Robert Smalls. I wonder if the notorious rapper Biggie Smalls took inspiration from Robert Smalls. The world may never know. Well, you can always contact him and ask. He was murdered a while ago. It's called a Ouija board. Okay. I'll get my seance set up next week. There you go. So that's going to bring us to Carl Brescher. I'm sure you've heard his name before. I've heard it, but it does not ring a bell as far as where he served or what he did. Like, the name is there, but that's all I can remember. He was a United States Navy master diver. He had his leg amputated in 1966. I still served as a master diver. There was a movie in 2000. There was a movie in 2000, Men of Honor, based on his life. Yes, okay. That's, yes, okay, yeah, I'm with you. Okay, so Carl Maxi Maxi Brashear 
born January 19, 1931, in Tonyville, LaRue County, Kentucky. He was the sixth of 16 children to sharecroppers McDonald and Gonzola Brashear. In 1935, the family settled on a farm in Sonora, Kentucky, and he attended Sonora grade school from 1937 to 1946. Um, Brashear enlisted in the United States Navy on February 25th, 1948, four months before the military was uh, desegregated by President Harry S. Truman. He graduated from the United States Navy Diving and Salvage School in 1954, becoming the first African-American to attend and graduate from the Diving and Salvage School and one of the first African-American United States Navy divers. While attending school in Bayonne, New Jersey, Brashear faced hostility and racism. He found notes on his bunk saying, quote, we are going to drown you today. Expletive. And... We don't want any expletive divers. I'm sure you know what those up expletives are. I'm with you. Yeah. Well, I'm not aligned with the message is what I'm saying, but I understand what you're saying. There we go. Yes. No, I, I got you the first time. Brashear received encouragement to finish from Boswin's mate first class, Harry M. Rutherford, who graduated, and he graduated 16 out of 17. So he was at the bottom of the class, but he still graduated, which is a hell of an accomplishment, especially with the hostility he was facing. Right. Constant obstacles by his classmates and potentially instructors. Who knows? Uh, Brashear first worked as a diver, receiving approximately 16,000 rounds of ammunition that fell off a barge which had broken in half and sunk. On his first tour of shore duty in Coinsent Point, Rhode Island, his duties included the salvaging of airplanes, which included a Blue Angel, and he recovered multiple dead bodies from the sea. Mm-hmm. Brashear was assigned to escort the presidential yacht, the Barbara Ann, to Rhode Island, where he met President Eisenhower and received a small knife that said, quote, to Carl M. Brashear from Dwight D. Eisenhower, 1957. Many, many thanks. I think um, the Beach Boys had a song named after the presidential yacht, did they not? Uh. The Barbara Ann? I don't know. Great song. Probably not after the yacht. Probably just some lady named Barbara Ann. Just funny coincidence. Let's see. I'm going to find out. <laughs> it's rocking in a reeling, Barbara Ann. Get it? Like they're fishing yeah. off of the presidential yacht. Yeah, it's all. It all fits. It is a happy comedic song about a man looking for romance. He goes to a dance, and when he spots Barbara Ann, he takes a chance and invites her to take his hand, hoping she will reciprocate the gesture. So, unless a boat can take their hand and love them back. I doubt it's about the yacht. Okay, hold on. Uh, Navy folks, and I'm sure you can confirm this, refer to vessels as her, right? It's a yes, it's a lady. 
and you want to take care of the lady, yes. and when you take the wheel, it's like taking her hand. Am I right? No. Oh, well, agree to disagree, I suppose. I think the Beach Boys were uh, celebrating Eisenhower's presidential yacht. You know what? You go for it, buddy. Thanks, man. I appreciate your support. <laughs> You've heard it here first, folks. Barbara Ann is about the presidential yacht. Mm-hmm. So, in 1966, January, an accident is na- that is now known as the Palmeiras Incident, in which a B-28 nuclear bomb was lost off the coast of Palmeiras, Spain. After two U.S. Air Force aircraft of the Strategic Air Command, a B-52G Stratofortress, and a KC-135A Sterato tanker during a aerial refueling evolution. At that time, Brashier was serving aboard the USS Hoist when it was dispatched to find and recover the missing bomb from the Air Force. Gotta find that nuclear bet, that nuclear weapon. They spent two and a half months searching for that bomb. I guess when properly motivated, uh, time is not a factor. It's like we're doing this until it's done. Mm. Well, I mean, the U.S. has lost a number of different nuclear weapons. Some of them have <laughs> never been found. Shh, shh, shh. Hey, you're trying to get us in trouble. No, it's public knowledge. Oh, okay. Then I thought you were using your insider information. No. No, if I was doing that, it would be beeped. Okay. We'll see what happens when this is released. I'm very excited. Ah. So for his service in helping to retrieve the bomb, he was awarded the Navy and Marine Corps Medal which is the highest award for non-combat heroism. You see, during the recovery, March 23rd, 1966, a lifting cable snapped. This caused a pipe to swing across the deck of the USS Hoist. Brashear darted over to push a shipmate out of its path. And doing this... It struck Bashir's left leg below the knee, almost shearing it, in, shearing it completely off. The impact flipped him into the air, which almost caused him to go overboard. Thankfully, he did land on the deck, though. He was then evacuated to an air base in Spain and then to the Air Force Hospital Weisbaden Air Base in Germany. And then finally, back to the U.S. in Portsmouth, Virginia. He suffered persistent infection and necrosis, and they eventually did amputate his leg. So Bashir remained at the Naval Regional Medical Center in Portsmouth from May 1966 until March of 1967, recovering and doing rehabilitation. From 1967 to 1968, he was assigned to the Harbor Clearance Unit 2 Diving School while preparing to return to full duty for himself. So he was put on light duty, saying, hey, let's teach. That's awesome. What a, what a guy. 
In April of 1968, after a very long struggle, he was the first amputee diver to be recertified as a United States Navy diver. In 1970, he... I mean, I'm sorry, that's just amazing. In 1970, he became possibly the first African-American master diver. There's this... It's debated whether it's him or John Henry Turpin. And they and he served nine more years after becoming a master master diver. He achieved the rate of Master Chief Boswin's mate in 1971. He was that's almost the very top of the enlisted ranks. And the army I know it's uh Master Sergeant is the highest enlisted rank you can have. What is it for the Navy? It is Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy. Okay. Wow, that's... Yeah, it's uh, the, 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 the senior NCOs is Chief, Senior Chief, Master Chief, Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy. Okay. Uh, Bashir was motivated was motivated by his beliefs that, quote, it is not a sin to get knocked down. It's a sin to stay down. And I ain't going to let nobody steal my dream. Uh, Bashir retired from the United States Navy on April 1st, 1979, as a Master Chief Petty Officer and Master Diver. He then served as a civilian employee for the government at Naval Station Norfolk, Norfolk, Virginia, and retired in 1993 with the grade of GS-11. Wow. Cheer uh, married and divorced three times. His wives were Junetta Wilcoxon from 52 to 78, Hattie R. Elam, 1980 to 1983, and Jeanette A. Bundridge, 1985 to 1987. He had four children, Shansa. I don't know if I am pronouncing that correctly, but there it is. Dwayne, Philip, and Patrick. Brashier's grandnephew is also a retired professional ice hockey player named Donald. Nice. Brashier died of respiratory and heart failure at Naval Medical Center, Portsmouth, in Portsmouth, Virginia, on July 25th, 2006. He is buried at Woodlawn Memorial Gardens in Norfolk, Virginia. After his death, his sons, Dwayne and Philip, started the Carl Brashear Foundation in his honor. So during his career, he received a number of decorations and awards. He received the Navy Master Diver Badge. He had earned the Navy and Marine Corps Medal the Navy and Marine Corps Accommodation Medal, the Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medal, the Navy and Marine Corps Presidential Unit Citation, the Navy Unit Accommodation, the Secretary of Defense Medal for Outstanding Public Service, Navy the Navy Good Conduct Medal eight times, the China Service Medal, the Navy Occupation Service Medal, the National Defense Service Medal with one bronze service star, Korean Service Medal with two service stars, the Armed Forces Expeditionary Medal, the United Nations Korea Medal, the Korea War Service Medal, and the Enlisted Surface Warfare Special Insignia. Uh, his Navy Marine Corps Medal citation reads as follows. 
President of the United States of America takes pleasure in presenting the Navy Marine Corps Medal to Chief Boatswain's Mate Carl Maxey Brashear, United States Navy, for heroism while serving aboard the USS Hoist ARS-40, which was operating in support of Task Force 65 on 23 March 1966, in connection with salvage operations of great importance to the United States. While engaged in transferring stores from a landing craft to hoist and heavy seas off the coast of Spain, Chief Brashear saw the bowline of the landing craft part. Realizing that a shipmate standing on the stern of the landing craft was in serious jeopardy, if the, if the heavily strained stern line also parted, he unhesitantly pushed his shipmate to safety but was seriously injured himself when the stress of the remaining line caused a portion of the craft to carry away and hit him in the leg. By his prompt and courageous actions in serving another man from, in saving another man from injury or possible death, Chief Brashear, at the risk of his own life, upheld the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. So the honors that he received. Brashear was honored with the Secretary of Defense Medal for Outstanding Public Service in October 2000 for 42 years a combined military and federal civilian service. This award was provi- was presented by Secretary of Defense William Cohen. On October 24, 2007, the Newport News Fire Department dedicated a 33-foot high-speed fireboat named Carl Brashear to be used by their dive and marine incident response teams. The Lewis and Clark class dry cargo ship USNS Carl Brashear Seven was christened in his honor in San Diego, California on September 18th, 2008. On February 21st, 2009, Nauticus, a science and maritime museum in downtown Norfolk, Virginia, opened a new exhibit called Dream to Dive, the life of master diver Carl Brashear. It is the first full-scale museum exhibit dedicated to Brashear. In 2009, the Chief Petty Officer Club on board Naval Station Little Creek, Virginia, was renamed the Carl Brashear Center. Carl's son and several friends gave speeches at and attended the, rena- the renaming ceremony. Carl was known to frequent the NPO club on board Little Creek up until the time of his death. On November 9, 2017, the Commonwealth of Kentucky dedicated the Carl M. Brashear Radcliffe Veterans Center in honor of Carl Brashear. Construction on the new center, which was located about 30 miles from Brashear's hometown of Sonora, was completed about a year before the dedication ceremony. On hand was his son, Philip, founder of the Brashear's Foundation, and Kentucky Lieutenant Governor Janine Hampton, Veterans, Veterans Center Administrator Israel Roy, and members of the Brashear family, along with members of the Combat Veterans Motorcycle Association who nominated and worked to collect over 7,000 signatures in support of naming the center after Brashear. On July 25, 2018, Lincoln Parkway Bridge, just outside Toneville, Kentucky, was renamed the Master Chief Petty Officer Carl Maxine Brashear Memorial Bridge. And Brashear's dress uniform is on display at the Hardin County Historical Museum in Elizabethtown, Kentucky, as part of the We Were There military tribute and exhibit. And the Orias S.A. Company released the Orias Carl Brashear Cal 401 Limited Edition Dive Watched in his honor. So that's Carl Brashear. Do you ever feel inadequate? I'm getting strong inadequacy feelings uh, for myself right now. I guess if I were to stack my accomplishments next to Carl Brashear, 
And there's a little, it's not quite even, we'll say. Not even close. I can always count on you for a reality check. And that is, <laughs> it's very uplifting. What is the word I'm looking for? Um, sobering. That's the word. There we go. Cool. Okay, good. I'm glad to keep you firmly grounded. All right, so next time we are going to talk about the Golden 13. And then also a woman named Michelle Howard. So, Mr. XO, guy who is now, you know, completely grounded with his expectations, I guess. Take us out. Well, thank you, Dale. Um, yes, I am, I guess, encouraged by Carl Brashear and Robert Smalls just discussing them today and what they've been able to accomplish in their lifetime really is inspiring. And uh, if Carl Brashear can r remain a master diver after having his part of his leg amputated, then I can empty the dishwasher or, you know, fill in the blank, whatever the thing is that I need to do. But yes, I'm taking us out. Uh, thank you for listening, first of all. Uh, so glad that you were able to join us today. Uh, if you want to contact us, there's a couple different ways to do that. You can email us at uh, usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. Our handle is at usnhistorypod. So tweet at us, mention us, whatever you want to do. Um, you can also find us on YouTube. Uh, if you'd like to listen there, we have a channel, and you're more than welcome to, to listen. Um, and if you want to join a Discord, we've got one, and we can talk real-time to each other about lady stuff or other stuff. And as always, if you could rate us, that would really be beneficial. And, uh, you know, tell a friend, a family member, um, you know, just let let them know what you liked about it or maybe what you didn't like, and then tell us so we could do more or less of whatever it is you liked or not, didn't like, respectively. There we go. So um, thank you, and um, back to you, Dale. All right. We want to wish everybody some fair winds and following seas. Bye-bye. See you later. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing 2-2.